Hello and welcome to Sparehouse Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spare movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur and Scott. I've got a beautiful woman in my bed and a dead man in my bath. Uh, you do. And I firstly want to apologize to the country of France for that embarrassing intro. Uh, it probably took more takes than I'd like to admit, but uh, we are here now. I mean, to be fair, I would say that your French accent was far more decipherable than the one Peter Sellers uses in this movie. Oh, really? <laughs> what makes you say that, Cam? <laughs> Uh, well, the thing is, I've studied French, so I, I can kind of speak a bit of French. So it's ah. uh, that's where that comes from. And I had to put like an affectation on that intro. That's not how French people speak. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. And I mean, the Peter Sellers one is intentionally mangled beyond all belief. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that was because um, we watched the original Pink Panther um, when we were you know covering that on the Patreon. And I think they amped it up from that movie into these sequels where I think they were like, no, no, play it up even more. Like just completely take specific words and turn them into indecipherable gibberish. So I, yeah, I think that was very much what he was going for. Like for instance, in the intro just there, I, I said the word hosts and I said, mm. erst. Yeah. And then, and then the other guy, person would say host. Yes. <laughs> erst. And then, that, but that was not in the first one at all. No, like there was, I'm trying to remember, was the accent in the first one played up, like, anywhere near as much? Or was it played... It was a little uh, comedic, right? It was still comedic. I watched a few clips of the first one today after watching this. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was still comedic. Um, but I guess we're sort of jumping into the film. Mm -hmm. We should go back and strike again. Cam, what are we talking about? Yes, we are tackling the fourth Pink Panther film. We are not counting the Alan Arkin Inspector Clouseau film as a official entry. So this is the fourth Pink Panther film starring Peter Sellers, directed by Blake Edwards. And this one is called The Pink Panther Strikes Again, and it was from the year 1976. Yeah, sorry Arkin hards out there. We are not talking about Inspector Clouseau, the film. We are sticking to the uh, the canon of Pink Panther films, if there ever could be one. but. Uh, it's interesting with tackling this film because we are jumping in because this is a franchise, but usually with franchises, we'll go back to the first one and, and track our way through. Now, we did cover the first Pink Panther film on Patreon, but we're not going to tackle them all because there's only one film of this entire franchise that really has anything to do with spy movies. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it feels a little bit like a diversion movie when you actually, if you're a fan of the franchise and you watch this one, it always felt like kind of the more outlandish, crazy you know, world-dominating stakes movie, whereas the other ones are very much heist movies. Yeah, which is a word I want to get back to later. Um, well, a sentiment I want to get back to later. But I guess the first thing to look at, for those who haven't really ever watched a Pink Panther film, here is your letterbox.com synopsis to set it up. The Pink Panther strikes again. Why are the world's chief assassins after Inspector Clouseau? Why not? Everybody else is. <laughs> Charles Dreyfus, who has finally cracked over Inspector Clouseau's antics, 
escapes from a mental institution and launches an elaborate plan to get rid of Clouseau once and for all. Dun dun dun. Uh, that's exactly the music you would play after that. On an um, organ. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I, it's interesting, even in this synopsis, there's an issue I have with this film built into it. Okay, what's the issue? Well, should we wait until later? Well, I don't know. Now you've teased it out there. It's uh, oh. You're leaving me wanting. It's the continuity. Oh. I genuinely wasn't expecting continuity in a, in a film like this. And I, it does a good job of being its own little unit. But you don't understand why Dreyfus hates Clouseau so much unless really you've seen the second and the third film. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's funny because this series was not exactly known for its continuity. And in fact, the events of this movie are mostly ignored in the following film, Revenge of the Pink Panther. So like Dreyfus is back and what have you um, after being erased off the face of the earth in this movie. So yeah, it was, I, I suspect that's, we'll get into this with the behind the scenes, but I suspect that has a lot to do with the fact that like they shot this one very quickly after Return of the Pink Panther. So it probably made sense to them at the time to just make it continued. But yes, you know, visiting it many years later, it might be a little bit confusing. Yeah, especially when you have no grounding in the rest of the films like I do. I've only seen one and this one. Yeah, and you saw The Pink Panther, the original from 63, and that movie is not very representative of what the franchise is. It's like, you know, audiences responded so strongly to Peter Sellers' um, slapstick stuff in that movie that they decided to really build these Inspector Clouseau vehicles around him. You don't get a lot of that um, in that first one where it's a lot of people hanging out at a ski lounge. <laughs> yeah, a lot of hanging out and a lot of David Niven, which I haven't got a problem with. Mm. Yeah, because you've got to think that first film is actually a David Niven film. Oh, yeah. Or, or, an, or an ensemble piece, depending on who you ask. But really, David Niven is the pink... Well, no, the diamond is the pink panther. But you know, he, he's trying to get the pink panther. Inspector Clouseau is trying to stop David Niven. So we have a... Uh, well, it's not a reunion from Casino Royale 67. It's a pre-union or something. But um, yeah, and so by the time you get here, there is no like David Niven. It's really all about the inspector because he turned out to be the rock star of the film. Yes, that's true. And also the titling of calling it the Pink Panther doesn't make any sense for nope. this movie in particular because at this point, the Pink Panther diamond is not featured, uh, which previously you had a shot in the dark which was like a murder mystery, not involving the Pink Panther diamond. So it had a title, <laughs> A Shot in the Dark. And uh, it was more of a 70s branding thing because they brought back the Pink Panther diamond in Return of the Pink Panther. But then they were like, we got to keep that name. People associated with the character and the opening credits and all that sort of thing. So from this point forward, Pink Panther's in all the titles. Well, anyway, we're losing folks because we're not really explaining ourselves very well. So I think yeah. before we pivot to behind the scenes, I've said my behind the scenes, I guess, or the background with the film is I've seen the first one. And I've seen this one. I didn't watch the rest growing up, which kind of feels like the thing you would do. This this feels very much like a daytime TV sort of film after school playing that sort of thing for kids. That's how it feels. Maybe not some of the stuff in this film, but I'm keen to know about you, Cam. And I'm sure we discussed this in the Patreon episode a little bit, but what's your connection with the Pink Panther films? Yeah, I was a huge fan of these movies as a kid. Um, was it the uh, Quasimodo character? <laughs> well, uh, I don't. I didn't have very strong memories of that. Actually, um, 
I remembered the have, Jaws. Have you looked in the mirror lately? Or? <laughs> I remember the Jaws bit at the end very well. That definitely yeah. grabbed me as a kid. But yeah. my memory was more like I saw Return of the Pink Panther first. That was the, the one that introduced me to the series. And if you had asked me at like the age of like eight or nine or something like that, what my favorite movie of all time was, I would have said The Return of the Pink Panther. Like that movie really just held a great power over me. And I, I'm not even that sure what it was about it, but I was obsessed with it. And so I remember going out and renting a number of the other movies in the series. Um, Shot in the Dark was also a real favorite when I saw that. But I remember my parents renting me this one, and I did enjoy it, but I remember being very thrown by how over-the-top crazy it was in comparison to the others. And I actually found myself appreciating this one more when I got older, because at that point I was much more familiar with the iconography of Bond and the sort of like... 60s spy kind of world because I wasn't I, I was watching Pink Panther movies before Bond movies really so like um this one kind of benefited from that but as a kid I was just like I don't understand this this is not like the other Pink Panthers but there was enough gags and everything that it kept me amused what, did your parents call you the Pink Panther they did not no no never once ever missed opportunity yes come on guys come on guys I know you're listening <laughs> you could do better um but yeah, as I mentioned at the start, we're doing something different. We're, we're going to tackle, and we're going to do this sort of thing going forward because a lot of films in franchises will often play in that own sandbox and sort of take different genres uh, as part of the film. And so they'll do a spy story and then they'll do like a, a chase film and stuff like that. So we're going to talk about those spy stories, but not the rest of the franchise. So this is sort of a first of many, really. Yeah, because we're going to look at movies like, you know, Cars 2, or I believe the uh, fifth Die Hard movie has a lot of spy elements. So there's going to be a lot of opportunities to tackle these things. But I think before we get into behind the scenes, Scott, we tackled the original Pink Panther on the Patreon. What are your thoughts on that movie for those that didn't hear that episode? Pay up. You can find out. <laughs> well, no, it's a, it's a valid question, Cam. I was actually quite smitten with the film i was quite charmed by the comedy it was quite laid back um a lot of people hanging out in the ski lodge like you said but that really worked for me that sort of it it wasn't like a travelogue it was just people doing some practical comedy and being funny with each other which is what i really quite liked about it and peter zellers and which is why i think he became this character full time really did jump off the screen to me right yeah i mean it definitely was his big iconic character although you know, Dr. Strangelove was also, of course, very important to his legacy. But I feel like, you know, whether he would have liked this or not, uh, Inspector Clouseau very much loomed large. I, how could you not be proud of that character? He, he basically came into a film, turned the film into his film, and then got himself six other films, five other films? Yeah, well, okay, yeah, he does... Well, it gets confusing because, like, Trail of the Pink Panther was filmed after he died, and they just used um, deleted footage, mostly from this movie. So It's like the original Grand Moff Tarkin right there. Yeah, it's... Uh, oh, boy, is that a movie. <laughs> that is... Uh, I, I, yeah. Well, I have, I have to ask you a question, because and, and for those who don't know, so they, yeah, they piece it together after he died from clips from this movie, mostly, apparently. Um, apparently, there was a, a longer cut, which I'm sure you'll go into. But what's more coherent? The final Pink Panther film, 
or Casino Royale 67? Oh, it's not the final Pink Panther film. There was more after. Um, oh. I guess his the final, fi- his final the Pink final Panther Peter film? film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think probably actually that final Pink Panther movie is more coherent. It's just a disaster. And it has David Niven in it. That's also true. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, but yeah, and I know you're a big fan because obviously you got into watching these films. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Well, you know, take us back. You mentioned the uh, dead man in the bathtub, so let's hop in with him uh, and and see what's going on. How did we get to a spy Pink Panther film? Okay, so it kind of originates with um, writer-director Blake Edwards, who oversaw a whole whack of these movies um, straight up until the 90s with the Roberto Benigni, Son of the Pink Panther. Um, But he was a guy, long-term Hollywood guy, who um, started as a writer in the late 40s. He worked on a 1948 Western called Panhandle. And then he was also doing directing, um, not necessarily things he wrote, but bouncing between TV and film. And his big, like, breakthrough in terms of, you know, grabbing the mainstream was in 1959 when he directed Operation Petticoat, which was a Cary Grant comedy that was a big hit that year. And then he would go on and have a bit of a streak and direct things like Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, Days of Wine and Roses with Jack Lemon, which was a very acclaimed drama at the time. And then in 1963, he wrote and directed The Pink Panther, Shot in the Dark, and then, you know, was kind of launched as this big sort of comedy director. And then things kind of, you know, petered down a little bit. He had a number of kind of passion projects that really wound up very poorly. He did one called The uh, Tamarind Seed from 1974 with Julie Andrews that was a just box office disaster. I've heard that one before somehow. It's on the list for us to cover. It has uh, pretty heavy spy elements. So, yeah, one day we will cover the Tamarind Seed. (laughs) (laughs) Strap yourselves in, folks. I know you can't wait. That's right. So around that point, um, he was approached about turning the Pink Panther into a TV series. Because him and Sellers had not got along well, especially during A Shot in the Dark. I mean, Peter Sellers pretty famously had a lot of you know mental health issues and substance issues. And they were basically at war with each other through Shot in the Dark. So the idea of them continuing on to make a third film at that point in time, no way not going to happen. Which is why we ultimately got that Alan Arkin, Inspector Clouseau movie. But they approached... Um, Uh, Blake Edwards about turning it into a TV show and he was I guess sort of a little bit interested and his career was struggling at this point so it was kind of like I guess I don't have any alternatives but it was decided that this ultimately would become a film it just sort of evolved into a film project as opposed to a TV job because they realized we might be able to get Peter Sellers because his career isn't doing particularly hot at this moment either So it was a real case of two very talented people whose careers had hit kind of these rough patches and the Pink Panther was coming a calling. (laughs) If your career is in the tank, I'm sure you take that call very quickly. Oh, yeah. And I mean, A Shot in the Dark especially was so beloved and such a big hit that it would have made a lot of sense, of course, to bring them back. Um, And so they did Return of the Pink Panther, which was a bonafide hit. And because that movie was so successful... 
they decided, let's just roll into another one very quickly. And so Blake Edwards reteamed with the uh, co-writer of that film, Fred Waldman, who had been a writer since the early 40s. He wrote a movie called Bathing Beauty um, in 44, starring Red Skelton and Esther Williams. His career was mostly TV heavy, but in 1960, he did a movie called High Time, um, which was a Bing Crosby and Fabian, Fabian of Dr. Goldfoot 2 fame, um, oh no! Don't bring vehicle. that guy back into my life. Don't but, bring him back. <laughs> Waldman had uh, co-written High Time with Blake Edwards, so that is actually where their um, creative partnership started. So basically, like Waldman would come back for return, stick around for this one, and then uh, co-write the remaining Peter Sellers um, vehicles. And actually, Trail the Pink Panther um, would be his final motion picture before retiring not necessarily the uh, strongest of uh steps to end off on mr waldman but nonetheless i i mean i can't get over the fact they made a film with you know clips of someone who was already dead but I, maybe that isn't the first time that ever happened and maybe not even the last time that's ever happened in hollywood no i mean well we had like um you know more recently i think of like sky captain in the world of tomorrow which had Lawrence olivier as the co-star and they just used old footage of him. Uh, Did it make sense in the film? Or is he just like riding a horse? <laughs> I wish. No, he's the villain <laughs> of the movie. But like, how do you... Did they just write dialogue that was things he'd already shot? Yeah, it was like old footage. And then I think they got a sound-alike actor to um, merge it together. This reminds me of the, uh, the South Park episode where they had... Uh, the chef come back. Oh yeah, he left the show quite famously, and it's just pieced together clips of him from the show. But it's purposely made to look bad. I don't think I've ever seen Sky Captain, but that sounds pretty awful too. Yeah, I mean, there's been cases. Uh, Sky Captain is sort of interesting. It's kind of an interesting misfire. But like, um, there's been, of course, many cases where actors have died partway through production, and they've had to fake their way through the rest of the movie. I think of Oliver Reed in Gladiator. But yeah. I, I I can't fault that because the production started like that's fine. But to go like, hmm, this guy's dead. Can we make money from him? Yeah, well, that, the, that stinks a bit to me. The seller's estate um, sued over Trail of the Pink Panther, and I believe got something like a million dollars. It wasn't even signed off by the seller's estate, and yet they dedicated the movie to him. <laughs> <laughs> in in loving memory of our Pink Panther, Mr. Yeah. Sellers. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, it's just a bit gross. <laughs> as I said, this movie was rushed into production to capitalize on return. And now Sellers was at a real rough point in his life. He'd had numerous heart issues. So there was, you can just see how much he's aged in this movie versus like, you know, 10 years earlier when you're watching like The Pink Panther. And so he had to deal a lot with, um, the limitations that were you know, basically being put on him. So his um, stunt double, Joe Dunn, deals with a lot of the physical comedy in this movie. And that would be the case as well for, you know, Revenge of the Pink Panther. And partly because of the health issues and I, probably just some of the creative frustrations, uh, him and um, Blake Edwards didn't get along too well on this movie. So once again, these two guys who, their careers are so inextricably linked in their successes, but they seem to just kind of like... I'd say love-hate, but it really just seems like a hate relationship that they can sometimes tolerate each other. And uh, Blake Edwards referred to this whole production as an asylum. Well, it's nice to know that we have something in common with the production of this film. Because, true, you know, 
We sound like we're having a great time. But listeners, I can assure you, I cannot stand Cam's guts. That's also true, yes. And uh, likewise, likewise. And yet he has the editing skill to make me sound really stupid every week. (laughs) That doesn't take editing. (laughs) 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 Ba-boom. A few other production notes on this one. I could not find hard clarification on this one, but I saw it printed so many places that I'll just acknowledge it, um, that Maude Adams was cast as the Olga character and then um, let go after about two days because they just felt the performance wasn't working. And that's when Leslie Ann Down was cast as the character. And this is where it gets kind of funny because she was apparently cast by accident. Um, Blake Edwards wanted to audition Nicola Paget from the series Upstairs, Downstairs. Um, and so that's who he thought he was auditioning. Um, and they actually brought in Leslie Ann Down, who appeared on the same show later in the run. And uh, Blake Edwards was married to Julie Andrews. And Julie Andrews pointed it out to him, but he wrote it off as lighting and makeup, which is why she didn't look the same as on the show. And so they cast Leslie Ann Down for that reason. It's a weird world you must live in when you decide to pick, uh, instead of having Octopussy, you decide to have the lady from Hanover Street. Well, that's true. Now, here's the question, though. Would Maude Adams be cut if this was after Octopussy? Because this is like seven years before Octopussy. This is like a fairly unknown actress. Uh, okay, I wasn't sure of the timeline. Okay, this is pre-Octopussy. It's actually pre-Hanover Street as well, to be fair. It is. To be fair, though, it is after The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah. I think they missed a trick on Maude Adams, because I know... I, I'll save my notes on Leslie Ann Down for later but having a leading lady that's a bond girl in a spy film that basically has a villain that's trying to be blowfeld more or less right or the phantom of the opera uh is is a a bit of a coup yeah and this was a little too early to capitalize on that hanover street heat of course of course that's that's more of an 80s thing (laughs) sure (laughs) they couldn't stop talking about hanover street you could feel the heat off the street And a couple other. I wish that bus run me over on that film. (laughs) That's amazing. That needs to be on like the next home video release, as if they're ever going to put another home video release of Hanover Street. But uh, (laughs) um, the opening titles of this movie, the opening titles of all the Pink Panthers are so iconic. But this one was actually um, overseen by Richard Williams, who would go on to become the animation director on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So he was um, partly responsible for bringing that character to life and all of Toontown to life. Well, this actually does have sort of a real life and cartoon blending and different types of cartoons being blended in together at the same time. So that actually makes sense in terms of continuity. It's the same chap. And yeah, we, we've tried to reference that a little bit in this week's artwork. So I hope you will appreciate that too. Um, yeah, I didn't know that though. That's a cool little factoid. Yeah. And the budget for this movie was $6 million. And domestically, of course, international is very difficult to find, much less for comedies of this era. So domestically, it made $33.8 million. So that's a pretty good return. And this is an era, of course, if you remember, like this is 76. Jaws came out in 75, and that was the first movie ever to crack $100 million. So that kind of gives you an indicator of like what success was at this particular point in time. So like $33 million off a $6 million budget was like 
that's definitely going to get you another sequel. Um, I did look up the box office on the um, the other Pink Panther films for comparison's sake. And this mm. one falls kind of right in the really hot period. So the Pink Panther, the first one, did $10.9 million. Shot in the Dark did 12.4. So we're increasing. And this is the 60s, of course, which is a bit of a difference as well. So that's pretty mm -hmm. good. Um, returns in the 70s, the one right before this, did 41.8. Why did you miss out, Clouseau? Why did you miss it out? <laughs> because it doesn't count. Uh, Vindication for Arkin. <laughs> returns did 41.8. So that okay, was a yeah. big bump. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this one landed at 33.8. And I do think that might be a little bit because it's too soon after the previous one sometimes like you lose money when it's how quick i mean it's like one year difference are you, are you saying we should release our episodes further apart possibly possibly yeah just to really like maximize audience attention <laughs> once every three years but also this is like kind of an era where like sequels are are not as the reliable business they are you know now so like this one is kind of following in the popular pattern of sequels where it's like kind of diminishing money you want to like try to get as many back but you're still going to make money but not as much as the previous so like 41.8 into 33.8 um but then a freak thing happens revenge of the pink panther comes out and makes 49.6 making it the highest grossing pink panther movie and then trail the one we've referenced that's sort of the frankenstein project did 9.1 the uh, Inspector Clouseau list, um, Curse of the Pink Panther, or at least Peter Sellers list, because Roger Moore shows up as the Pink Panther in that one, or as not the Pink Panther, Inspector Clouseau, I should say. Um, that one did 4.5 million, and then the Roberto Benigni one did 2.4 million in the 90s. You've missed out the other one, the, the 2000s, with uh, what's his name? I'm not familiar with those, Scott. Oh. I guess we're never going to talk about those again. <laughs> dead, dead and buried. All right. Just like that man in the tub. Yes. So that's sort of very notable that that returns through revenge period, like movies three through five, are the real financial high points of the series. Steve Martin. Yes. Yes. Steve Martin. Yeah. Those Pink Panther movies are awful. Really, really awful. Okay. Is, his, is Steve Martin's French accent as good as mine? Um, I mean, I remember laughing when he said the word hamburger. That was kind of amusing. But outside of that, yeah, it's probably about even. Is it something like Elmberger? Yeah, basically, yeah. Did I, did I ever tell you that story about when we went to Paris and uh, at McDonald's and my dad ordered a burger? No. So uh, my dad couldn't speak French and I was in primary school at the time. So uh, for those who are not in uh, England... Uh, elementary school i guess is the term and i was a very fussy eater at that point we went to mcdonald's we were in paris because of course that's what you do when you go to paris uh and i only liked plain hamburgers and my dad didn't speak french so he walks up to the cashier and he goes le hamburger no shit <laughs> oh this does ring a bell okay it's, there you go maybe i have told it and you're all bored now i'm sorry but uh yeah someone else has hamburger before <laughs> So this movie landed at number 12 for the year of 1976, right between the Mel Brooks classic silent movie and Murder by Death with Peter Falk, which I have not seen. The top three for this year. Number one was Rocky. Number two was To Fly. 
which was, it seems like an IMAX presentation or something. It was a aerial tour of America from a balloon ascension in the 1800s to a venture into space. I mean, that, that's up there with like the venereal disease film for weird top three films. Yeah, and it's like Two Fly made a lot of money. If you look it up, it made something like 80 something million dollars in that era, which was unbelievable. So Are you saying it's box office took off? It did indeed, like an 1800s air balloon. Uh, and number three was A Star is Born, the Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson version. The best version. <laughs> sure. I'm not even kidding. It is. I've no, seen... it's not. Shut up. Are you serious? No way. Yes. I can't stand the Lady Gaga one, I have to say. What about the like um, Judy uh, Garland one? Garland one. I, I that, that would be second. I, something about the... That was the one in the seventies. I just quite like. I I watched it. I think my mum had a copy as a kid, so it was on quite a lot for some reason. I had no idea about this of this part of you. I didn't realize that the seventies stars board held such sway over you. <laughs> I'll fight you all. <laughs> I'll fight you all for Chris Christopherson. I probably shouldn't actually. This is fascinating. Well, uh some final notes on this one, sort of post release for the Pink Panther Strikes Again. This movie was an Oscar nominee. Oh my. Uh, let me guess. Let me guess for what category. Is it going to be for the theme? Like, is it sound? Like music? It is. It's not the Henry Mancini score, which you might think. Um, it was actually the original song, Come to Me, which was uh, written by Henry Mancini and uh, Don Black. Um, I believe Don Black worked on um, some of the Bond songs as well. He's one of the most famous lyricists in Bond history. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I had the pleasure of uh, briefly speaking to him a couple of weeks ago. He, uh, oh, the two of them wrote the song that plays when um, Clouseau is getting undressed at the end of the movie that's sung by Tom Jones. Oh, that song. That was a catchy song. Yeah. But it lost to Evergreen from A Star is Born. Hell yeah. Suck it, Don Black. Now, the Golden Globes. They had loftier praise for this movie. They nominated it for Best Picture and Best Actor, Comedy and Musical. Comedies don't tend to win Best Picture, do they? Well, that's why the Golden Globes has the Comedy and Musical category. That makes sense. And uh, it lost both categories to A Star is Born. Yeah, come <laughs> on. Wait, A Star is Born won a comedy? Mu- comedy and Musical. Uh, okay, fine. So, yeah. I mean the fact that you the fact that you think I'm silly for liking it is a comedy. <laughs> and uh you know, on a sad note, Sellers passed away July twenty fourth, nineteen eighty, just four years after this movie, at fifty four of a heart attack. He'd had like a lot of heart attacks. It's something like a dozen heart attacks before he finally passed. And it's the sort of thing where like if he'd gotten a heart transplant, he probably would have been okay, but in that era, just they did not jump on that one as quickly as they probably should have. Sorry, when did you achieve your doctorate? <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> <laughs> don't, do not take medical advice from this podcast. No, people. don't ever, don't ever, don't ever. A star gone too soon, I would say, when it comes to Peter Sellers. I, I'm i a defender of Casino Royale 67, despite its mess. And I know his demons were a lot of the reason why that film fell apart. Uh, never really recovered. but. You can't argue with the man's body of work from Dr. Strangelove to these films to Casino Royale to all the other ones I'm sure I could pick out. Uh, 
you wonder like obviously cam does not have any medical qualifications but if someone with medical qualifications had maybe helped at the right time could we have had another 15 20 years of peter sellers films that we could be talking about now yeah exactly it's just a a real case of like someone just undone ultimately by just health issues that just kept piling up and up which i'm sure someone who's already grappling with mental health issues that was not a good combination either like that must have been just brutal for a life no and, and he clearly was working till the end yeah definitely and uh just lastly you mentioned this earlier but the um there was a cut of this movie that i've seen varying reports as to how long it was and some say three hours some say yeah you have <laughs> some say two hours 20 minutes some say uh just over two hours and uh whatever the case was a bunch of that footage wound up being used in Trail of the Pink Panther. So this movie ultimately um, has a huge impact on kind of the legacy of Peter Sellers' performance as Clouseau and that this movie was his final performance as Clouseau in Trail of the Pink Panther. Yeah, it's interesting that it was all sort of found and, and pieced together. I don't think I ever want to go and experience the Trail of the Pink Panther. I'm not sure I want to see sort of the specter of Peter Sellers, you know, thrown around on screen i don't really i i don't feel that's a, a good way of acknowledging the man's legacy yeah uh it's it's more interesting um if you're a fan of the series and have gone through it's more interesting just to see like how do you assemble a movie without your clue so that was kind of what made me watch it because i did not watch it when i did the rest of the series back in the day it was a movie that I remember at the time, my mom was like, don't watch this one. Don't watch this one. And so it wasn't until I bought the DVD set in the early 2000s that I was like, I'm going to finally watch this movie. And that was the same time I watched like Curse of the Pink Panther um, and, you know, Son of the Pink Panther. And those ones that are generally deemed um, terrible. The, the Steve Martin films. Uh, yeah, th those two. Those two. Th those were not in the box <laughs> set, thankfully. We found out two things today. I am a big fan of the 1970s version of A Star is Born, and Cam Smith has a vendetta against the works of Steve Martin. It's not the works of Steve Martin. It's those Pink Panther movies that are just like, how do you go from like some of the like best comedic showcases in cinema history and just to kind of crank out these like um, Pink Panther movies with Steve Martin and a journeyman director? Like that's not, that's not going to work. And they didn't work. They were really dull. See? He's I know, going, I'm, I'm so fired in. up. God damn it. <laughs> God damn, Steve Martin. Uh, has he got a spy film? Uh, Steve Martin? Um, nothing's springing to mind, but I don't want to say no. It's probably because... You probably know exactly if he does or does not, because you've obsessed over his filmography. Yeah, it's true. It's true, I do. But I, no, I don't think Father of the Bride is a um, spy movie. Again, pot shots at Steve Martin. All right. All I right, like right. Father of the Bride. I, I'm not uh, dismissing that movie, but... You know, you heard it here first, folks. But, you know, we are here every day in every way. We're getting better and better. Let's talk about the Pink Panther Strikes again. I'm actually going to go first, if you don't mind, Cameron. Please. Mm. Here's the thing. <laughs> On one, like, side. I like the concept of a guy so frustrated that he loses his like wits and decides he wants to destroy the world just to kill one guy. Because I imagine that's uh, basically how you feel about me off air. Um, you probably got that whole like accordion, like a, a big old keyboard or an organ in the corner of your room with like a Phantom of the Opera cape on. 
when we're off air. Yes, but that was also the case long before we met, so... Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard things. But we've spoken about a few comedies on the show so far, and, and if you look back on most of our comedies, Central Intelligence, there's a few more that are not jumping to mind, but we have covered some comedies. I'm usually on the side of this really worked for me. And what do you think, Cam? And you'll be like, ah, comedy's very subjective. It didn't really work for me. Da 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 da. I think this is the first time on the uh, I'm on the other side of that. I get it. Peter Sellers is funny. This film has funny moments, and there were bits where I was genuinely laughing out loud. But it just wore thin on me. It felt like it went too long. It felt like it was all over the place. Like, not just in terms of location. I don't understand why he decided he needed to go to four countries, five countries in this film. It really messes things up. Uh, and, and it just makes it insanely hard to follow. So all you have to look forward to are these protracted scenes of Peter Sellers doing good work. Like, I think of that that long set of him trying to get into the, like the, over the moat into the drawbridge <laughs> of the castle. And I'm laughing, but I'm like, this is five <laughs> minutes of the film. It's amazing. Come- it's great. It's great. But I'm like, it's not like it's a 90 minute punchy film. It's almost two hours long. And it's just filled with these long sequences and then like nothing in between. And so I was like, haha. And then I have to wait for like 10 minutes. Haha. I, I don't know. I wish I was higher on it. Like I watched it twice and watching a comedy a second time you don't like is rough because you've heard the jokes. <laughs> so you're not laughing half the time anymore. So that second viewing was a tough go. Uh, I was paying more attention to like the performances at that point and, and like Leslie Ann Down and, and Herbert Lom. But yeah, I just don't think it worked for me. The comedy was there and I laughed. Uh, I you know I had a good time with bits of it, but it really didn't hold my interest for an hour and 40 odd minutes. This is kind of, I think, the classic case of the comedies as just a clothesline for gags, where it's like they've assembled this kind of globetrotting plot, which... Let's be honest, it's a globe-trotting plot because they want it to evoke, like, James Bond kind of spy films. Mm-hmm. That's why. For sure. There's for no sure. logical, real reason for why we're jumping all over the globe. All the Oktoberfest stuff, you're like, wait, why, why are we going to Oktoberfest? <laughs> it's because they want to, uh, you know, create a sequence where there's all these hitmen chasing him through Oktoberfest. But um, this one, to me, it's interesting watching it relatively closely to the Pink Panther original on the patreon um great episode folks check it out but um patreon.com slash byhearts that's right (laughs) um but this one to me has a little bit of that 70s energy where it you know a lot of comedies in the 70s have kind of this like hangout vibe where it's a little bit leisurely in terms of the pacing and what i found with this one was it's a lot of kind of time just you're kind of like waiting for things to happen, but then like the big set pieces, you know, kick in. And to me, that's why this movie works is because the set pieces are so effective and often just completely genius. The moat one, you know, because we've already mentioned it, I'll, I'll mention it again. Like that one is a prime one, but there's others we'll talk about as we continue through the episode. But just like the comic invention in these sequences and how they will show you something and then just completely like... So it's like you show this guy walking up to a moat with a pole and you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's like they basically have it pay off in the way you would expect, but somehow it still makes you like kind of like laugh and surprise. Um, 
I find that to be really, really unbelievably well staged by Blake Edwards. I think, like, in terms of comedy direction, this movie is incredibly strong. Um, but I, I can't disagree with you that there's a lot of kind of dead space. Um, some of the investigation stuff is, you know, it's there. Um, I found when they would cut away from the Peter Sellers character, you kind of lost some energy. There's a lot of stuff with the president of the United States, which I believe is Gerald Ford, is what they're trying to get across. I'm not Gerald Ford I'm aware of, but he's not like now at this point in time, at least to a Canadian, like an iconic president that like jumps off the screen. If you had like a Nixon, I'm immediately going to respond or a JFK. But like Gerald Ford, I'm like... I think that's who it's supposed to be. I recognized Henry Kissinger more so because if he had a cameo on The Simpsons. But, like, there's a lot of stuff with, like, the U.S. Um, politicians there and the president that I'm like, okay, like, this is not working. Like, it's not particularly funny. It feels like it's very much pitched at a 1970s audience that does mm-hmm. not carry through to now. And it also affects the the pacing of the movie. So, like, I agree with you. Like, it is probably a bit long. Um it is, it's a shaggy movie, and so many of the movies, especially the comedies of this era, are this kind of, like, shaggy comedy, where they're just kind of, like, killing time, just, you know, taking the vibes, people, just enjoy yourself, but to me, it's when this movie hits, it hits so strongly that it's hard for me to uh, not appreciate it. Well, I think uh, one of the things that maybe holds me back from enjoying it, and it's not it's not an age thing. I, I can hear some people listening to this be like, oh, he's so young. It's, it's not his kind of comedy. It's not that. I can appreciate older comedies. I like stuff from the 60s as comedies. I like stuff that's older than that. And, you know, Peter Sellers' performance is great. He's basically in a silent movie. It's like a Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin show sometimes, especially that moat scene. Yeah. It's exactly that. It doesn't need a score. It could, if someone with a tinkling piano could do it, and it would be fine. Um, But there's just all this stuff in the, in the middle that just doesn't work for me. But And... One thing that jumped out to me, and it, it, very prominent in my notes, I think I wrote it down three different times in different ways, is you need to be on board with the character of Inspector Clouseau. You need to be invested in the Pink Panther. <laughs> the diamond? <laughs> I've seen the first one. Yes, the diamond. You need to be you're wondering where it is throughout the whole film. Yeah. Um, where, when's that cat coming back? Because, like, I've not seen the middle ground. I've not seen the evolution of the character, the growth. I've not seen the the debut of, of Kato, right. played by Burt Kwok. I've not seen the introduction of Charles Dreyfus, who goes mad in this, played by Herbert Lom. And I've not seen Peter Sellers gradually go a bit crazy with the character. Maybe not too crazy, but, like, this is almost like watching The Fast and the Furious and they're stealing DVD players. And then I'm tuning in for Fast 9 and they're going to space. And I'm like, oh, what, how did I get here? That's fair. And, and that, that pushed me away a little bit. I, I didn't know how I got. To, I, I feel like I should have actually watched the other ones leading up to it, which is a bit of an investment. I'm sorry I didn't do it, folks. And maybe I will go back. But that's something that really, like the, the character I fell in love with in the first one, this, this really isn't that guy. Or it's this guy. It's that guy turned up to 11, if you pardon the, the Spinal Tap reference. I remember as a kid, though, the turn for Dreyfus to become this megalomaniacal villain um, did throw me because it, yes, it was like a character who was like the long-suffering boss who was like having nervous breakdowns over Cluzo, 
you know, endlessly bumbling and injuring him in the process, which you see certain elements of, you know, you reference those Steve Martin movies. That's the Kevin Klein character in those movies. It's like the boss who's constantly, you know, plotting against this employee he hates, but being shown up at the end and also falling victim to all of this man's, you know, bumblings and having, you know, grievous physical injury put on him. So, like, those sorts of elements were always there, but it was never like... This man is going to turn into a supervillain who's going to create a doomsday machine and, like, try to take over the world. Like, there was never that sort of lead-up, which is why I think as a kid, it did throw me. And it does very much feel like, I wonder if it was really, like, if they're making these movies super close, you know, back-to-back with Return, you don't want to, like, replicate yourself that quickly. And the Pink Panthers typically were these kind of heist movies um, or, like, mystery movies. And it was like, if we do that one year apart, the audience has seen it, so we have to give them something they haven't seen. And so they went in a completely drastic, different direction that ultimately I think is why... I think fans of the franchise appreciate it because it is kind of the crazy outlier movie in some ways, the most cartoonish movie. But it, in terms of like continuity and also feeling like uh, you can just enter this one without a lot of background might be a little bit uh, confusing or daunting. Well, another film I, I noted down, and I'm sorry, folks, a Star Trek reference. You can tally that up for this episode as a Star Trek reference here. Is I can imagine it'd be like in the 1980s, you went and saw Star Trek Three without seeing Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Sure. Star Trek Three sets up that Spock died and kind of shows you what happens as a little flashback, but it really doesn't get the sort of heartstrings going like it actually did watching The Wrath of Khan. Like that, that's a gut punch. And so, yeah, they they go in to find Spock. It's in the film title, Search for Spock. That's all fine. But you don't necessarily have the sort of, like, you don't get the full payoff if you are not well-versed on Spock and the loss of Spock. So for me, like, I I don't, I I was able to extrapolate that Charles Dreyfus didn't like Inspector Clouseau from that uh, chat with the psychiatrist at the start. I think that's what that's there for. That's what that's designed to do. But it didn't, it didn't really give me that, like, understanding of how frustrated he was i hadn't seen two films of him literally pulling his own hair out which i imagine that's what i would have seen it would have been an artless thing to do for them but also not crazy at the time should they have done like a flashback to the previous films or something up front because like that's the sort of thing that now we'd be like you would you should never do that but in the 70s not uncommon like that's the sort of thing they would have actually considered doing I wonder if that would have helped audiences. Just a, even like a quick, like when he's in the asylum, to suddenly flash back to a few moments of him being, you know, <laughs> knocked over by Clouseau and what have you. Yeah. Well. Okay. Let's uh let's breathe out the bad air and in with the good. Let's talk about things we liked with this film, and there's plenty of things to like. Oh yeah. I'll start us off. I mean, I mentioned the moat. but there are a lot of really like protracted, funny gags in this film that had me in tears. The the stuff in the like by the lake in the what I only wrote down is the Shrublands Hotel. Sure. Uh with with Dreyfus being constantly knocked into the lake by Clouseau. <laughs> Hilarious stuff. And even like the like it subverts you as well, because you think, okay, he's finally out of the water and they're sitting down having a chat about what's been going on with the police since Dreyfus was incarcerated. And then at the end of that conversation he drops him back in the water again and he slowly loses his mind. He's losing grasp on reality. Much as I imagine you are when you wake up to 10 text messages on WhatsApp from me. 
That is true, yes. Um, and I think that one is really strong because it is just like this repeated series of gags. But it also feels like a little, almost like a gentle introduction to the madness that's going to unfold as you get forward. Because it definitely feels like a movie that doesn't foreground all of its big set pieces. Like, that's a great one to like lull you into the movie. But then it really hits you with the big stuff in the second half. And there's a lot of movies that don't do that. They just play their big mm -hmm. scenes early on. Um, because to me, I think like the, there's a couple set pieces I think I'll touch on because like they fall under the like absolutely love. And I think Herbert Lom is pretty amazing in this movie. Um, you know, Peter Sellers is always going to get the majority of the attention. But I think Herbert Lom is unbelievable as Dreyfus. There is the scene though where Sellers is like interrogating the people of that house. And that entire sequence, the way it builds, and even before that, I think my favorite gag in the entire movie is him on the parallel bars. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, gym. the parallel bars. I am well-versed on this. <laughs> and, like, the reveal of him swinging over into the open staircase. <laughs> <laughs> I just... I, I saw the stairs there, and I'm like, no, no, no. Oh, oh, right, there he goes. And he just flew down it and then, like, recovered at the bottom and started his investigation. Um... <laughs> It, it's it's great Clouseau because he's so he knows he's a fool, but he like tries to he tries to style it out every time. So he just like gets back up and goes, "Yeah, it's time for the investigation. Here we are." Uh, yeah, gold. It's like this perpetual confidence that he tries to fake, um, in all these situations, and uh, that setup, just like the geography of shooting that, is really clever on Blake Edwards' part, mm -hmm. and he pulls that gag a couple times with stairway reveals, um, but. The ad whole scene where he's interrogating those people and he gets like the gauntlet stuck on his hand and all that, it just builds and builds and builds and made me laugh over and over. And honestly, I think a scene that's very like, I feel like I've seen it before, but it really had me roaring was the entire scene near the end where he poses as a dentist, this elderly dentist to go um, basically do a tooth extraction on Herbert Lom, which is how he gets into the castle. And... On its face, like, I've seen this before of characters doing, you know, comedic dental stuff. We saw it in The Man Who Knew Too Much, the original version, for example. Mm -hmm. But, like, here, where it's the combination of the laughing glass uh, and the two of them just hysterically breaking down. But also Peter Sellers' melting face <laughs> over the course of it. I could not stop laughing. Like, it was just genius. Uh, that that is a great scene that got a few giggles out of me. The only other one I, that jumped out to me that I wrote down was actually a bit of a nod to the original one, and I wonder if it's like a through line joke through the rest of the films, and, and that is the bedroom, where like they got people switching in and out. One goes into the bathroom, the other one goes into the other room. One gets shot, and yeah. they're like missing each other in like a triangle, and that happens in the first film when it's like um, Peter Sellers, David Niven, Peter Sellers' wife in the film, yeah, and someone else, and they're all like just trying to like scurry oh and and, and um david Niven's like cousin or nephew i think it is in that scene yeah it was uh was it robert wagner i think i think so yeah yeah i think it is the pink panther's nephew because he also wants to be a diamond stealer or something like that i think but yeah th again it's inspired in this and it's again it plays like a silent movie it's there's no sound really it's just people going in and out of rooms but and, and i think that's where the the film for me is is at its best 
where it's a sort of physical comedy to it, like much like the parallel bars, much like the investigation, uh, sorry, interrogation, and much like the tooth extraction. It's a very practical thing. You've got Peter Seller with his legs up on the chair trying to pull an imaginary tooth out of Herbert Lom's mouth as they're both giggling their way through it. And then like Herbert Lom figures out it's Clouseau, but because he's high on laughing gas, he tells his man to go and kill him whilst laughing his head off. It's hilarious. And it also has the great bit, similar to the parallel bars, where Peter Sellers goes to conk him on the head with the very heavy club, and then falls backwards down a like set of stairs we didn't see before. Like that's again just brilliant direction on Blake Edwards' part. Like he he brings an artfulness to these movies that they almost well the sequels did not deserve, but this one you know he's definitely working very well here. Um, I actually thought, too, the Hitman sequence, you know, as you were saying, like, kind of the um, silent movie aspect of these, the sequence at Oktoberfest where he's being hunted by all the different Hitmen, and they keep getting accidentally killed in his wake, that is a sequence that plays completely fine, um, silent, like, it would totally work, especially, like, the bit with the two guys in these stalls opposite him, and then he drops the toilet paper, and they both shoot and kill each other, like, moments like that I thought were very effective. And and keen observers will notice that this is actually the first theatrical appearance of Mr. Deep Roy. Yep. Who is still acting now. I, I look, checked the credits and he's referred to as Roy Deep. So I guess he was um, changing his name at that particular point in time. I think that would switch back pretty soon. Um, there was also some like, did you notice the cameo too of Omar Sharif uh, showing up as the, I guess, Egyptian assassin, I suppose? The one who... Uh, breaks into the uh into the house the one that um has the like romantic tryst with leslie ann down which omar sharif was a big star at the time he'd done lawrence of arabia um dr Zhivago. so uh this was definitely a star-studded cameo they were having here i i noticed the character but i can't say i noticed the actor when it comes to the chat but yeah he has a I mean, he's the bloke who manages to convince Leslie Ann Downs' character to to leave the Russian Secret Service because of his lovemaking skills. Yeah, that's some that's some prowess right there. Yes, and I mean, while we're talking about things we really like, I thought the entire sequence of Peter Sellers getting undressed to the Tom Jones song at the end was pretty damn funny as well. Uh, first off, I like the '70s like swingers room there with the bubbles and all that sort of thing, and the mirror on the bed. But, like, Peter Sellers is just milking that, like, crazy. And I thought that was actually very funny as well. I'm interested you point it out as a swingers room. Sounds like you know what you're talking about. It's so 70s. That is so, like, just the epitome of, like, what you would see in, like, swinger 70s movies and things like that. Learning a lot about camp today. Um, Something else I liked, uh, to be fair... I actually quite like Leslie Ann Down in this film. She was not a not a main thing that I enjoyed about Hanover Street. There wasn't much I enjoyed about that film. But I thought for the brief time she had, as this sort of turned Russian agent, I thought that was a lot of fun. Yeah, like it's kind of a thankless role in some ways because ultimately your job is to show up and be, you know, the straight man or woman opposite Peter Sellers, who's like that's the character the audience is all watching. That's the one they want to see. So... Yeah, it's kind of, as I said, a thankless job. But, like, I thought she had enough, like, charm. And just, like, kind of like that movie star charisma you want in that part where you can walk them in. She has, I don't know, how many minutes of screen time do you think? 10? 15? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like really not much at all. Not compared to, say, when you go back to that original and like Claudia Cardinale is in like a fair chunk of the movie. Um, but like here, that is uh, not the case. But I thought like she stuck with you. Like that character of this sort of like Russian spy. It, it definitely landed. And I think, you know, paid off very well at the end when they're together and then Cato crashes their romantic uh, liaison there. And I also made a note of this. I thought this was kind of interesting. This is a movie that in some ways is picking up a lot of um, elements of the James Bond franchise. Um, the whole idea of like the Russian spy falling in love with, uh, you know, our hero. Actually, this is one year before The Spy Who Loved Me. So I thought that was kind of fun as well because it would make so much sense if this was like a 1978 movie to be paying homage to Spy Who Loved Me because that was such a huge hit, but not the case. Are you saying that Leslie Ann Down is the original Triple X? I would say so, yes. That's a bold claim, but I'm all for it. I just wanted to quickly shout out before we move on to dislikes. I really love the uh, animation at the start. I, I, I assume that all of the Pink Panther films have like an animation at the start then, because the two I've seen have. Yeah, they do, yeah. And one of them, okay. one of the bad movies, um, the opening credits were done by Marvel. So, yeah. Ah. There you go. Maybe there's like a, a, a full clip online where you can watch them all in a row. I'll see if I can find that for everyone. And the other thing I want to shout out was the music. I know, obviously, the Pink Panther theme is a legendary theme anyway that's carrying through. But the song, you know, it was nominated for an award. I think that stands out from the film. It's one of those songs that's like, oh, this was made for the film? Feels like something that would be playing on the radio. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a definite musical element to the Pink Panther. In some ways, it actually, it's funny that this one's kind of like, playing off the Bond tropes, but like they occupy kind of a similar place. Like Pink Panther, the original comes out one year after Dr. No. And they're both like these franchises built around a character very much driven by music. Like whether it's the Bond theme or the Pink Panther theme, those are incredibly iconic elements that become very important to the storytelling. There are song breaks in, you know, a number of the Pink Panther movies. Um, this one has not just the Tom Jones um, song, you know, at the end, but it also has, um, a scene at like a, a drag performance where you have just everything stops as we get this like song number, which I think I I couldn't find hard confirmation on this, but like um, Blake Edwards was married to Julie Andrews. I think she may have done uncredited um, voiceover for the singing in that um, performance there in the club, but like they're both so defined by their music and yeah, Henry Mancini's work is just unbelievable across the series I also just wanted to, yeah, as you said, the opening credits, I mean, how do, are you not going to, like, completely wow me with a series of film homages in your opening credits, where you have the, you know, Hitchcock um, introduction, mm -hmm. you have Batman, you got King Kong, Sound of Music, Dracula, Singing in the Rain, and then Buster Keaton's The General, and that feels like a very appropriate one given that a lot of what Peter Sellers is doing feels like, as you mentioned earlier, kind of evoking that Buster Keaton style. Absolutely. And I, I will also point out, you mentioned the drag act, and it popped to my head. It was nice to see a drag act done remotely tastefully in the 1970s. There's not really any jokes thrown at the fact. It's just like, this is, okay, it's what he does. That's great. Yeah, like, I think there's some elements that are dated, like just the way they portray some of like the patrons and stuff like that feels a little bit campy sure. and whatever. Yeah. But I was actually, when I saw the drag act introduction, I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> like, where are we going mm -hmm. here? What I liked though, was that that character who was 
you know, the the butler at the house he'd gone to earlier. Um, I liked that that character, when, you know, it, push came to shove and there was the big fight that broke out, that character was more than capable. Yeah, absolutely. And I also want to, the scene also features a drag king. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Which is, again, very forward thinking. That I, I mean, they did exist in that time. But, like, to be in a Pink Panther film, this is a, more or less akin to, as you say, a Bond film in terms of its status in sort of cinema history. Maybe not quite Bond, but, like, it's it's a franchise that you could ask anyone about and they could pretty much draw the Pink Panther. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought, like, that Ainsley Jarvis character was interesting. I would have actually liked to have made uh, made that character more of a sidekick for Cluzo. I think that could have been fun. But I'm also just glad the movie didn't make it too cringeworthy. Little bits, but, like... It's a case where, like, a lot of the comedy, I suppose, is that, like, Clouseau is uncomfortable initially when he realizes what's going on. But, like, Clouseau's an idiot. So, like, how much are we supposed to actually share the mentality of Clouseau? It's an easy character kind of, to just kind of roll our eyes at. Yeah, yeah, because he, he's meant to be the, the, the idiot in the room. So if you're acting that way around those people, it makes you an idiot, too. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents... Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, roll out the blankets because we are having a beach party with 1964's Muscle Beach Party starring Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello. Surf's up, big Kuna. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Um, but let's look at some of the things we disliked. I kind of tackled a couple of mine up front, so maybe I'll just discuss it a little bit further. But the main one for me is I think it just really it outstays its welcome for me. I know there was like a potentially a two and a half hour, three hour cut out there. I'm not sure I could have dealt with that. I like bits of this film, but there's just a lot of dead weight in between that I feel, feel like really dragged it. Like I, I feel like there's a, an hour and 30 cut of this film that is be super duper punchy. I can't disagree with that. Um, It's, yeah. I mean, you don't need a lot of the stuff with like the president and all that sort of thing. And it just feels like, it's funny because people often will point to comedies of this era and be like, oh, you know, comedies used to be slow. But it's like if you go back to like 1930s screwball movies or 1940s, they're really fast paced. You watch a Marx Brothers movie from the 30s, like they are like lightning quick. So it's almost like comedy was really fast. And then you reach this era in like the 60s, 70s where it gets very slow. (laughs) And it's like they're just like, oh, just make it more of a hangout experience. And then, you know, you get towards more of the 80s and then it builds as things get faster and faster to the point where if you watch like a you know, say Judd Apatow produced movie. Now there has to be a joke like every God, like 30 seconds or something, if not more, like they need to be rapid fire throughout this one. When it's hitting, the comedy is pretty fast and furious, but it's the lulls in between that 
I can understand make it feel a little overlong. Yeah, and I said this earlier as well. Like, if you're more invested in the Clouseau character, you've seen the four films preceding this. Okay, three films. Um, maybe you're like, okay, I'll hang out with him. It's like Thunderball yeah. in a sense. Like, there's a lot of just hanging out with James Bond. And if you love Sean Connery and you just love the idea of hanging out with James Bond as he as he hangs out with Domino in the Bahamas, great. There's tons of that. There's James Bond underwater. Tons of that too. But like. Some of it just Clouseau bumbling around and not in like the big sequences, but just you know the the Oktoberfest is probably the one of the things that bothered me the most. Like okay, there's some fun gags in there, uh, Deep Roy, that, that stuff's quite funny, but it it could all be taken out of the film, and I don't think it would be any weaker for not having it. Really, see to me like that's part of like the that's what keeps the movie going is sequences like that because it's like this burst of comedy, whereas like if you take that out, no, no, but like. But there's like the whole setup to get there. Like you could remove sure. the whole thing and you just save twenty minutes. Okay, you lose that scene, which is it's a fun scene. But I, I'd rather keep like the bridge and the lake at the start and the bedroom and the the dentist stuff. Like that's all far funnier for me. Oh, I definitely think there's ways to get there quicker. Um, I I always yeah. think of Raiders of Lost Ark, where there's the part where you know the uh, the trucks are taking off with the Ark, and Indy runs over. Uh, to his allies and is like, where's the Ark? And they go, they're in the trucks. And he goes, trucks? What trucks? Boom, cut to the chase. Like, that's all you needed. And I think like sometimes that's something filmmakers should rely on or em- embrace more, which is just cut to the chase. Like, a lot of movies are overly explaining now. And this one I wouldn't say mm-hmm. is necessarily overly explaining, but it definitely takes its deliberate time sometimes to... It's interesting because these movies typically are heist movies, and I think they sometimes require a little bit more explanation so the audience can understand the heist. But when you are conveying a James Bond-like supervillain taking over the world, it works in shorthand. You don't really need to explain that much to get uh, Clouseau from A to B to, you know, the evil castle. No, no, I agree. Um, What about something from you, something you didn't like about the film? The Cato stuff is problematic um i think burt kwok is like really funny like he has genuinely like effective moments in this movie my favorite part he has is maybe when um he puts on the um (laughs) hunchback costume and then kato's like where are you (laughs) like that got a big laugh and like the physical comedy that burt kwok is doing is like genius but like there is definitely some racial elements at play here that have aged horribly um, in terms of how Inspector Clouseau greets his friend <laughs> that I'm not going mm. to uh, uh, replicate what he says exactly. But that stuff is if iffy for sure. I do like the idea of Clouseau hiring this like martial arts master to basically keep him on edge at all times like that is kind of funny to mm-hmm. me that it, it just breaks down every day into these like <laughs> chaotic martial arts fights where they destroy the apartment that's kind of funny to me but yes in terms of like the Cato character there's issues but also um i found actually in terms of the staging this was some of the worst um um elements in terms of directing them that uh blake edwards has where there's a lot of really bad sped up moments and then slowed down Mm -hmm. comedy and it's like it's not funny when like you see peter sellers using nunchucks in fast motion 
it's just like uh, okay it's the sort of thing you and i have complained about in other movies um gotcha uh famously in a car chase there i also think of there was the fast famously famously there was the fast motion chase in uh dr goldfoot 2 that um i at least appreciated little parts of but nonetheless it's a technique i don't think works so i think for me that i i was actually quite nervous when i watched that opening kato action scene because i was like oh no is this what the whole movie is going to be is this really like clunky sped up slow down stuff and it's not luckily it ends there like even kato later on is just in the bed he's not really doing much else so that's fine i actually thought like the moment where kato shows up between like uh Cluzo and uh olga like screaming all three of them that was actually really funny so like it's not like the kato character can't be funny it's more like there's dated uh, representation going on here, but like there's physical comedy you can do with that character that I think is effective. And I did like the final little button on the movie of the three of them getting launched through a wall into the river. I did not see that coming, I have to say. <laughs> I did not. Like, I, I know none of it was obviously any of the actors, but it was just. I, 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 when the bed came from the wall, I was like, okay, it's like it, it's like the Chekhov's gun, like it, it it's, it's gonna pay off, so it's gonna go back up in the wall, otherwise you wouldn't have shown it coming down. Yeah, but I did not think it would launch like a trebuchet and throw them through the wall. Yes, uh, that did get a laugh out of me. I have to say, you got to end big, baby. <laughs> uh, nothing's bigger than uh, but quack. That's right. That's right. <laughs> No comment. Um, otherwise, like I could nitpick some bits and bobs, but I think like my main hang-up is that runtime and the sort of the 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 sagginess between the big gags. Yeah, it makes me want to actually go back and revisit Shot in the Dark because that was uh, always my favorite of the series, and I'm curious how it plays now. If it feels like super quick or if it feels like it has more lulls, I do remember the previous film to this, Return of the Pink Panther is two hours long. So I'm really curious how that one plays, because that was, as I said, like my favorite as a kid. One of my favorites. Well, it's, I, I wanted to point out as well, before we go to sort of final notes, we didn't mention this in the like section, but Peter Sellers is a master of comedy. Yep. There's, there can be no doubt of that. The sequences that work best for me is when he is performing physical comedy in this film. Or, or some verbal jokes as well, but mostly physical comedy. But to bring it back to the nitpick, and you mentioned the health issues and stuff, so that maybe informs it more, and I won't be as picky on it, but there's scenes certainly where he feels rather disinterested. There's one particularly in the police station where I feel like he's just sort of going through the motions. Um, even on the look on his face, it just looks like he's bored. Is that the scene where he's like working with his assistant, like bangs his head off the desk and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I watched a, a bunch of outtakes that was actually actually was made a trailer when they were publicizing the film. It's all on YouTube. And even that scene there, like he looks like he's just sort of, oh, I don't want to be here today, which is, uh, I mean, it, it, it figures into the history of Peter Sellers that we know through this podcast. And, and bless his heart, he did a great film and, you know, apparently did other great films afterwards, too. But, yeah, it just there was moments in this film where I felt like he wasn't really there, which just could have been a medical thing. Yeah, I mean, I would say if his health is so poor that he has, like, a stunt double stepping in, like, frequently throughout the movie, yeah. It, it's it's tough, because it's, like, Peter Sellers, with this Pink Panther series, it is kind of this, like, 70s run that I think really connected with people, even though the characters, you know, I think, 
like Peter Sellers is in his prime when he's doing like Shot in the Dark and the original Pink Panther. But when he came back and did these Pink Panthers, which are the ones that were like the bigger box office hits and the ones that like people like me rewatched over and over again, they're not him at his best. So it's like he, mm-hmm. he's kind of best known for the Pink Panther movies. He wasn't at his best necessarily. Well, that happens a lot with like, if we're going to compare it to James Bond again, it happens a lot with that too. People reach for, you know, Goldfinger and Thunderball. But I would argue Sean Connery is probably at his best in From Russia With Love. Yeah. And Doctor No, I think as well. Yeah, uh, but that's maybe that's just personal taste. Maybe everyone thinks differently about that. Um, I've got a couple of final notes, Cam. Do you have any? Yeah, I've got a couple. We had the Rosa Klebb shoes um, at the uh, at Oktoberfest that definitely made me uh, like wink in appreciation. I thought that was great, and also um, the <laughs> I don't know what else to call them nipple needles that like pop out. Um, that reminded me a lot of the fembots in Austin Powers. And I know, of course, that, you know, uh, Mike Myers is a huge Peter Sellers fan and likely was looking to Pink Panther movies for inspiration, uh, in some ways too. Well, I, I went with needle nips in my notes. Sure. So needle nips is the official term we're going with. I mean, they obviously stem from like Dr. Goldfoot. They go back to that. Yep. Um, but yeah, like that, that jumped out to me too. Those needle nips protruded right at me and i did get that little nod and, I mean, I, and this is one of my final notes and sort of a question i want to pose to you and, and just the listeners uh, uh just something to think about and let us know how does this work for you because it's not an overt james bond riff but how does this work for you as like a as a bond riff because it's kind of it kind of what it is when you boil it down you know dreyfus is basically blofeld or some sort of maniacal megalomaniacal uh bond villain in a very fake castle <laughs> in a very fake castle he has not got a top secret volcano lair which we're still working on folks um yeah you know, you've got the bond girl with leslie ann down you've got you know um i would guess kato's like the felix lighter of the film maybe sure uh and of course peter sellers is is your spy um he finally gets his full spy film after you know getting half of casino royale um, but I, I think it's a success in that sense. I think it's a nice homage without being too like, oh, we've got to have a gun barrel and he's got to drink a martini. Yeah, like I think this one sticks true to like kind of the comedy style of the other Pink Panther movies uh, in terms of like, you know, the Pratt Falls and the Sellers physical comedy. But like, I think it was smart to kind of mix up the ingredients. And I think this one does a good job of kind of doing the big picture Bond stuff um, without turning into a Bond movie. Because, like, Clouseau is still Clouseau, but they kind of capture the flavor of the Bond franchise, and I think it was smart to do it once, and, uh, you know, the next movie they would move on and do different things. I, I do need, like, a snap cut made. Maybe I'll do it for YouTube of Peter Sellers falling into the water and then playing the credits of Thunderball. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, I had a couple other things. You referenced earlier, like, a nod to the first Pink Panther with, like, the bedroom mm-hmm. far stuff. There was also an extended sequence of Peter Sellers in a knight costume, which was also at the end of the first Pink Panther. I did not remember that. I've forgotten that too, actually, until you just said it. Yeah, so that definitely jumped out at me. And I'm now like questioning how many movies he dresses up as a knight in in this series because it's been probably for me about 20 years since I've watched this series. So a lot of them are a little foggy for me. 
I've only seen the two, and they're both from the last year, and that's still foggy <laughs> for me. Uh, um, a couple of notes, uh, and I'll, I'll throw it back to you, but I'll chuck in a note now as well. Uh, one thing that jumped out to me in my first viewing, I did some research on it, is throughout the whole film, Peter Sellers is wearing the Hindu Om symbol around his neck. It's a necklace. Huh. Uh, you'll know the symbol if you write it out in Google. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out why there was, it was a choice. Cause I, unless, like, uh, unless Clouseau had found religion in the past films or something. It, it felt like it was really a Peter Sellers' choice that he was just sort of sneaking into the character. Huh. And so I did some research, and there's a strange connection. So apparently, and I, uh, I'm not sure of what the exact circumstances are. There is more online, but I didn't dig too deeply. But he was in a, uh, uh, you know, near-death incident with George Harrison from the Beatles, who is quite a famous, devout Harry Krishna. Yeah. Um, and during this, the moments where they thought they were in real trouble, George led them in a, a Harry Krishna prayer. And Harry Krishna's used that sort of symbolism, and it's quite tied into Hinduism. Um, and yeah, so that's why he sort of adopted that uh, afterwards. Huh. Well, I wonder if that's the case with the other films around this point in time as well. Huh. Something else to look for. I'll probably find some more information about it and post it during the week when this episode comes out. It's just a bit of trivia. Uh, see if I can find some more snapshots and maybe a bit more information about the incident. But uh, yeah, it was either a plane or a train or something like that. Something automobile that was in a crash or a near, near crash. Uh, yeah, but that was that really. Uh, did you have any other notes? Uh, just the last thing. It kind of ties into the spirit of like the filmmaking process on this one where Blake Edwards very much encouraged um, improv. And was like, guys, just like do whatever you can come up with and we'll use whatever works. And uh, there is a bit where when he puts on that hunchback costume, where suddenly like Peter Seller starts going like the bells, the bells when the phone is ringing. And I'm like, that is improv. Like that is very clearly Peter Sellers just going crazy in this moment. And that moment genuinely had me like laughing out loud. I wrote down in my first set of notes, because I do two sets, like the first viewing and the second viewing. I wrote down, is this a lot of improv? And so I, I mentioned that uh, the blooper reel that was a trailer that's on YouTube, and we'll, I'll post that during the week at some point as well. Um, and it, there's tons of alternate takes, especially with like conversations with people, and he's just throwing out different lines, and it's just him cracking people up. Uh, so there was definitely some improv on this set. Yeah. And, you know, just lastly, that that ending Jaws homage, I mean... That is like gold for me. Just gold. I'm surprised you haven't got that like printed or something instead of the Jaws poster behind you. I know I should, right? Okay, Cam, we have arrived at our destination. It's time to face the sanity board. Are we passing and are we getting taken out of this place? Is the Pink Panther Strikes Again making the knock list? The question goes to you, sir, but I will preface with a little bit of information for everyone who's following along at home and has their answer to the question as well. On the knock list currently, there is only one comedy film. Okay. Um. Oh, <laughs> now you've really like thrown me with that statement. You're like really setting me up to fail here. Um, it's what I do best. Cause, cause my initial response is like, I don't know that this necessarily is what i would say classifies as a spy film 
it feels like it's definitely playing with sort of the conventions of Bond movies um, and some of the iconography of Bond movies. But, like, what are the spy elements? Like, there's no... There's, like, assassins that come for him. But, like, Clouseau isn't really spying. He's investigating through the course of the movie. And even, like, the big villain, which clearly has a lot of Bond villain stuff, as you noted... But a lot of it is also couched in, like, Phantom of the Opera and, like, Dracula kind of stuff. So, in terms of, like, the laugh factor, I don't think it's insane to consider this movie for the knock list. Because I think it's, um, at least for me, um, about on par with what I would hope for of a movie that's going to make me laugh. But I do think it's kind of shaggy. And I do think, like, the spy elements, while present... In terms of like pop culture spy representation, are still a little too diluted to. If I gave someone a list, let me put it this way: if I gave someone a list of the all-time great spy films, as you know, dictated by Spy Hard's podcast, and Pink Panther Strikes Again is on there, I think they'd be confused. <laughs> so I think that's why I have to say no, even if I do think this movie's um, really hilarious. So what you're saying is you don't think comedy films deserve to be on the knock list? The problem we have is that, like, there's not a lot, at least that we've covered so far, of great spy comedies. There are some, Mm -hmm. right off the back of my head, we have not covered that I think are going to be easy inclusions. But, like, there is, I think, a real tendency by filmmakers to kind of just, like, rip off the Bond formula or, you know, spoof Bond stuff because it's a very easy thing to market. But how many of them are actually really good? And those tend to be the spy comedies we're talking about. So, like, I am hoping, you know, we can get to some of the really, really top tier ones. But this is, to me, like, not not the best Pink Panther movie. It's probably, like, third or fourth best Pink Panther movie. So, like, you're asking me, does it belong on the knock list? Like, it's not the best Big Panther. It's pretty watery on its spy elements. I- I'm struggling with this because it did make me laugh a lot. But no, I don't think I can quite put this one on the knock list. Well, that's Cam Smith for you. He's very sure about Steve Martin, but he's not particularly sure about this film making the knock list <laughs> or not. I will make it easy for you. It's a no from me. I thought there were better comedies that we've tackled so far than this. But I didn't. I did not enjoy it. I found a lot of fun things about it, and I love some of the set pieces, but I feel like the film, like, it, it won't hold its own weight under that. There's not enough good stuff in the film to hold it up. And and if I put this next to Three Days of the Condor and North by Northwest, I think we'd be laughed out of the room. Exactly, yeah. Not that I care, actually. Not that I give an, a, a flying F about what anyone else thinks about this list, in the sense of, like, this is what we determine as as a friendship between the two of us as what we like about spy films and there's people there's, there's films that we've missed that i've heard from people saying why did this film not make the knock list well because it's our choice um and i appreciate that people have feedback on it and i'm always happy to hear the arguments but like ultimately it's it's what our gut feeling is and if our gut feeling is a no for this it's pretty simple i'm curious what comedy made it on the list before our man flint yeah, that's one. Okay, I wasn't sure if you were regarding that as like the pure comedy. So we've never had like a just pure on comedy make the list. No, no. And the closest we've had is like Central Intelligence was okay. 
Yeah. Uh, Spy Hard, I was surprised at how bad it was. I thought going into it, it would be a, a good film. It just really isn't. Um, uh, and there's a couple of other comedies that I think we've tackled that have just sort of escaped. I mean, like Gotcha. Is... Sure. I mean, you you can make the argument Spy Kids is a comedy. Jumping Jack Flash. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but none of them are, I think, good enough for me. to. Uh, I'm, I'm, but you say there are some good ones coming, so I, I wait to see what you've got for me. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone knows the specter of Austin Powers hangs over this show, but we've often said, like, people are going to benefit from our reviews of Austin Powers if we go through stuff like the Matt Helms and the Flints and all that sort of thing first, because we'll have a much more, I think, interesting take on those movies than we would have if we just jumped into them immediately yeah because it'd be kind of like going back to them if we did austin powers first we'd be going back and going oh that's where austin powers got it from oh that's where austin powers got it from instead of when you hear our review on austin powers man of mystery we can point out all of the cool callbacks yeah yeah but you know let's not belabor the point that's two no's and as such the Pink Panther Strikes Again is not making the knock list and the dossier on the film is complete and filed and classified. Cam Smith, what have we got coming up next week? Yes, we are tackling the 1995 film Bad Company starring Lawrence Fishburne and Ellen Barkin. I don't know a heck of a lot about this one, which makes me super excited to watch it. Yeah, this one's a complete new one for me, too. It's strange. It's a 90s film. You'd think I'd have an idea of what it was. But, yeah, I've never heard anything about it. So I'm going in blind and I'm looking forward to it. So your mission, along with ours, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Bad Company from 1995 and join us next week. If you enjoyed what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week folks i'm off to munich goodbye <laughs>